Good morning. Good morning. You know, the te- I, was, I was telling you before we got on here, of course, the tech troubles never end, not only because I'm stupid, but um, we were supposed to have a guest today and things got a little jumbled and I'm kind of glad we didn't because there was an extremely heavy light hanging on the wall and it fell off the wall. It would have beamed him. Like exactly. That would have been a great scene to open our uh, murder mystery about him. Our court trial. What? What is the court? The court trial. Accidental murder. What? What is there? Something like unintentional murder. I wonder if I would be responsible for that because I'm a co-conspirator. They'd be like, "Look, I saw in your Twitter bio that you're a co-conspirator, and smoke him if you got him." And this entire thing, it's been a long game to actually, you know, accidentally air quote kill. Kill this person. <gasps> wow. We should so, totally be podcast femme fatales. That's it. Well, should be. Should be. Yeah, that, right? Yeah. yeah. So, um, so it's been a minute. You just told me it's, I actually don't actually believe it was you were here a week ago. It seems like three weeks ago. Everything's compressed these days, it seems to me. I know. I can't believe that a week ago I was sitting in your, in your recording studio, panic writing a, a story that was due the, the next day. And actually, Sarah Heppola, it would have been you that the light killed. Oh, my grand plan was foiled um, had you been sitting But I, you don't know something about me, which is that I have a plate of metal in my skull from all the times I fell down the stairs. I am one of the most, like, bounce-resistant people. Okay. Um, so you're in Dallas. I just actually bought my uh, my my travel plans for when I'm going to see you in June. We'll we'll talk about that later. Um, and I am here in New York. I've got some travel coming up, uh, including I'm going to be on Cape Cod later uh, next week. I don't know if we have any fans in. What is this? Are you some kind of Kennedy? This is like the North Shore oh. of oh. Carolina, the Cape Cod. I'm going to Portland. Yeah. I'm going to get God. Yeah, no, I am not. But we may we may have some Kennedy discussion later. No, I'm a, I'm a friend of mine shooting a movie up there. I'm going to go hang out with her for a few days. So just oh, hang fun. Out. So, yeah. Um, and I think both of us have been kind of burning the midnight oil. That's my impression. But we do, have do you few- guess. Guess what time I woke up this morning? One thirty. Oh, you're so close. It was one fifteen. There we go. Well, and you're going to bed now at six. 30, is that right? When you hear like people's dinner bells ringing, you're like, oh, I got to jump in bed. My best memory recollection-ish thing is that I fell asleep around eight o'clock last night. Well, that's a normal night of sleep then. You're not a normal night of sleep. It's five and a half hours, five hours and 15 minutes. It's a a little short. A little short. Well, I, I, I've been getting up at 4.30 myself, but that's because I got to scoot out to my exercise class. I'm like made of rock now, just so you know. In case anybody was interested in following my bar three uh, extravaganza journey, it works. So, Do you have <laughs> buns of steel? I don't know. I don't know. I don't think so. But it, I got to tell you, man, this stuff works. That's all, that's all I'll say. We're not the, it's boring for people. It doesn't work unless you have buns it works. of steel. It works if you work it, Sarah. Have you ever heard? Oh, that? it works if you work it. So work it. You're worth it. That's Wait, it. that's an AA saying. Yeah. Um, so Sarah, you um, I think you you did something this week that I did not do, but I I tried to play catch up because the first thing you you said to me was that you were interested in um, in the Met Gala. I was interested in the Met Gala. Well, <clears throat> no, I, 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 I was. This is suggesting that I spent a lot of time watching the Met Gala, which I didn't. 
what happened was that there was this sort of one-two punch of fashion on social media. Social media doesn't tend to be very concerned about fashion, at least Twitter doesn't. And then all of a sudden there'll be these days and I'm seeing pictures of celebrities and I'm like, what's happening? And, you know, like this morning I woke up and Pedro Pascal was trending. And then I, I was like, oh, I like him. He's hot. And so I clicked on it. And then it was this weird picture of him in a long red, like floor length coat with shorts. And it, it, was, it was a very strange look. And I was like, oh, no, the Met Gala has happened. And there was another picture of Jared Leto in a cat costume. Did you see that? Yeah, I did. As he was just as a giant cat, which kind of reminded me, what was it on the um, on the Oscars? They had the dancing, was it a dancing bear or something? And it was just went on for way too long. Somebody in a big bear costume, some sort of costume, some animal costume. And it went on really, really long. And people were like, God, that was really the worst part of the Oscars. And I was just wondering about that choice. It's like, well, what's is this like a trend now? I hope that in the future, everyone shows up to the Oscars dressed as um, their favorite furry, as a different animal. That would actually be really exciting. It's not like, what are you wearing? Like, who are you wearing? It's like, like what other animals could you kill on this red carpet? Or how about they have to kill the animal that they wear? Oh, that's intense. That's that's some like reality. That's some like speculative fiction oh. shit that's going. That's Hunger Games stuff. I think my idea is is kind of realistic because, you know, we've gotten to this place where like we have mixed feelings about celebrity consumption and like, do you show your body or not? And so we can just solve it by everybody dressing like an animal, like a cute animal, like the, the last scene of Tar, like Japan. But of course, they'd have to make it like fashion. Like I will say, I, I, I the only thing I saw about the Met Gala was the Chrissy Teigen um, so that's the Washington Correspondence Dinner. Oh, well, okay, we'll get there then. See, I really don't know anything, Sarah. Yeah, I, because because everybody's favorite Washington correspondent is Chrissy Teigen. Yeah, well, we'll get to her in a second. But I will say, when you mentioned the Met Gala this morning, I went and uh, just clicked on, there was like a little six minute. And you know, when, when you click on a video and it's like two minutes or six minutes and it gets like halfway through, you're like, when is this thing going to be done? Right. This fashion thing that I clicked on, all of a sudden it was done because it was so eye-poppingly interesting to me. They were talking about, I guess, Carl Lagerfeld, the designer Carl Lagerfeld, who died in 2020, was kind of being celebrated at the Met Gala. So people either, it was something he had had to dress them in or some campaign that they knew or loved. These people looked amazing. Paris Hilton looked amazing. Three of the Kardashian women, girls, incredible women girls they are women girls one you know there was kim kardashian she's like i don't know 40 or something but then the other the two young ones who were absolutely stunningly beautiful and what they were wearing wearing, one of them was wearing like a bathing suit well i i saw them all together one it was like a high cut kind of thing i have to say fashion when it's high high fashion with all these ideas in it it is a thing of beauty. It's transportive. And even Jared Leto's like cat thing. I was like, you know what? I get it. I get it in that context. Because get it, get it. Why? Get, what do you get? I thought it had theater. It had oh, it, well, it it did. Like way larger than life. I mean, the Met Gala stuff, you're like, I, I luckily, fortunately, I got to wear a gown a couple of weeks ago at the fire gala. You know, you wear, you're in these outfits, like this is larger than your normal life. And if you're in the right environment, 
it really kind of like it just elevates everything. You feel it. There's that frisson. And at the Met Gala, it is, it's the apex. It's, you know, there's a lot of money, there's a lot of performance, and there's actual real art in the fashion. That was beautiful. So this, is, <clears throat> this is one of those places where we disagree because I want fashion without ideas. I want I want fashion that is it's not some puzzle I'm supposed to solve or some statement that's being made. I just want a sort of like easy beauty. I'm not I'm not interested in this. So a number of you. So I'm not a big shopper, but um, a number of years ago, there was a little fashion thing. I guess it's like 10 or 15 years ago called Normcore. And it was very much what I wanted to do. It's like this shirt, these pants, that's it. A jacket, everything works together. Put them in a little thing with your folding toothbrush. You're good. You can travel for, you know, three years with this one bag of clothes. And I dig that. And I understand the utilitarian, you know, uh, joy of that. But I think fashion, you know, just like writing can be anything. Fashion can be anything. And this, what I saw in that quick video, it just took it to a place that uh, it's just art, and I, I appreciated it. I liked it. Yeah, no, it's fine. I mean, this is one of the reasons I wanted to discuss it with you was I thought that you would have a different perspective on it than I do. And it's not that I like normcore. I have no interest in normcore. I like um, eccentric <clears throat> looks, and I like beauty, and I like old Hollywood, and I like all sorts of different dramatic presentations. It's that I don't like fashion with ideas. Like, it, it's not, that's not interesting to me. In the same way that I don't, like a lot of times I don't want to read a story that's like hard work, you know, like, oh, it's a puzzle and you got to put it. I'm like, no, I don't don't want to do that. So it's, you know, and, and I, I, the Met Gala is this interesting thing because I think it's gone on for a long time, but I'd never even heard of it before social media. I feel like social media made it into a thing where like people at home were playing along and I was watching you know, I was watching some footage of like Rihanna showing up and I just, by the way, I, this is probably controversial, but like Rihanna always looks nervous to me. She always looks awkward and nervous to me. She always looks like she isn't quite inhabiting her like queendom. Whereas like Beyonce always looks regal and Rihanna always looks like a younger sister to me. Like, but she was wearing this like white bouquet of flowers, this whole like Thing that was swallowing her face and then she was somebody was like helping her get it off on the red carpet and then she was turning and it just the whole thing was sort of like wow this is so wild if I were aliens I would just think all these people were royalty these these were the leaders and it's like okay I guess they are I just I don't really want Jared Leto in a cat suit to be my leader <laughs> That's our money. That's our money line right there. Well, yeah, I don't either. But I don't. When I, when I see it, I just I see them engaging in something that you know I'm likely never going to show up. But that's fine. I I enjoy just the performance of it, and I I I thought there was a lot of a lot of beauty there in terms of Rihanna. She always looks to me like she's keeping a secret, and also like she kind of liked to dip. Like she's like, yeah, I'm here. But yeah, definitely. <laughs> here um definitely and and i i thought it was interesting to compare to the white house correspondence dinner they're so nose to nose on the calendar and then like but the but the white house House correspondence dinner of course is in should be a totally different thing it should just be dorks like you and me um for a very long time i i I, you know this whole whole new star-studded aspect of it i don't think that that's that's been historical i don't think so I, I, and I don't know why 
um, it is now. I guess it started, I mean, who would it have started with? Maybe with Reagan? Obama. Well, okay. Yeah. I, I think I think there was a ramp up of celebrities there in the Obama years. Oh, sure. I, sure, sure. I know that I crashed it in 2007 or eight with a friend of mine who was having a bachelorette party and she was just like, we can just show up. And I was like, oh, okay. And we went to this party um, and all the cast members of The Wire were there. And it was super exciting because I was so obsessed with The Wire. Did you get into the White House for the dinner? Not for the dinner. Just there's parties beforehand. There's like this series of rooms that are like theme bars. And so you can just, I, I think my friend had gone before and knew that they were kind of lax on that part of it. So we showed up and I don't remember what we said to get in, but we just did. And there was like seven women and we all just sort of filtered around these parties full of celebrities. The only people I remember, The Wire, it was, it was Marlo and um, Kima and Clay Davis, the guy that goes, oh, shit. <laughs> and there's a picture of me. Somebody took a picture of me. That was the best picture of me ever because I'm just like, my face is just lit up like a Christmas tree. And then I've never been able to find that picture since then. But it's me oh. talking to the three of them. Oh, right on. God knows what I was saying, you know. Good Lord. So let's talk a little bit about, I think you were the one that uh, tapped me into the Chrissy Teigen chest. Did you maybe say like, what do you think of this? Or maybe I just saw no, you. No, Stephen Volnietz did. Stephen oh, Volnietz, our listener. And, and friend of the pod had tagged us on social media and said, well, I'm a dude and I don't know what to think of this. Sarah, Nancy, what do you think? And so I saw it and I was like, oh, okay. You know, if, if you didn't see a picture of Chrissy Teigen at the White House Correspondents' Dinner, she was wearing a very gauzy, open dress that sort of had a long train and there were like three attendants carrying it along the entryway, which was a weird look. And then, um, you know, and John Legend's just next to her looking all sharp and John Legendy. And, you know, my first thought was like, oh, it looks kind of old Hollywood mixed with like J-Lo. And it's pretty. Um, but I mean, is it appropriate for the White House Correspondents Dinner? I, I don't... That had been his question, is this appropriate? And I was like, I don't even know what's appropriate for the White House Correspondents' Dinner. I don't understand why this thing exists. You know, it just seems like a total, a total um, circle jerk. It, with I don't know, it's weird. I always thought it was weird when they had the comedians come and roast the president. I thought it was weird. The whole thing is weird to me. Galas are weird to me. It's And, and it's especially weird when journalists who are meant to be sort of like the fourth estate outsiders are being kind of insidery at a event for the president. It, it It's always been strange to me. It doesn't mean I don't approve of it. It means I don't understand it. Well, I, I have kind of contrary views, which is always fun when we kind of have contrary views. Um, I actually think the white house correspondence dinner, I've never been, I've never even been near it, but I think it's uh, kind of interesting. Like one night a year, we, you know, let down our hair and we all kind of just get in a room and have a chicken dinner and maybe some cocktails and like roast ourselves. I, I have no problem with that. Chrissy Teigen's dress. I want to, 
uh, add a few things to the, what you said. It looked very, very much like a negligee. It was very sort of yes. just like, the, the top is just, you just got like, like basically sleeveless and then down you're with like very close to like very, very low cut, like very like low. Like a thirties, like a 1930s negligee. Like you're basically like it's covering, it's barely covering on the inside the nipple. So your whole chest is out and then it's kind of tight around the bodice. The bot, the material was very sheer. Like it was white to the point where you you could basically see through it. It was it was like gossamery, right? Okay, and it was from the waist. It was two pieces of material that opened. So basically, like you could just open it and flash your your vagina, right? If you wanted to. But she had well, she on, had a, there was a bottom. She had on panties, of course she did. But what I'm going to say is she had her attendants. Um, carrying this. And one of the comments I made is if you're going to have some attendants carrying like this incredible dress, like maybe dress them kind of nice. They basically had on like outfits from Target or something. Which yeah, really totally. Cool. That would have been me. And um, But the dress itself, because they're holding up the back of it, it was often lifting up. So essentially you could see her panties completely. Like not just like a little, oh my God, like you're going to see a little bit like it was open. Can so I just say they weren't panties. They were actually like bikini bottom. Like they were like sheer satin. Like okay. the same way you liked those Kardashian girls. One of them was wearing the same thing. It's basically a swimsuit bottom. Sure. Okay. I'm just saying what I saw from what I saw, you basically just saw the V of the material. I didn't see the whole material. She was also, it was a little fussy because you could see she was constantly sort of like fussing with her straps, which is like a pain. Like you're going to be walking, you're walking through a crowd. You maybe want something that's not so fussy. So my feeling about this, it was very sheer. It was very, I mean, to use an yes. old fashioned word, kind of risque. Okay. Yes. So it's one of two things in my opinion. It is, okay. If that is your intention. If your intention is to go to something that's not, look, let's face it, Washington, D.C., the people do not glow in general. You walk around the streets in Washington, D.C., even the people that are 25 have on like khakis that fit badly and the girls are wearing gray. Like it is not a glowy town. It's not New it's, York. It's, it's not it's LA. like the capital of Normcore. Uh, it's, yeah, well, but e Normcore is kind of styly, right? This is just like, like, pudgy and not glowy at all. I would say probably most of the people at the White House Correspondent Dinner, they're going to dress up, but they're not. It's not LA, okay? It's not super stardom kind of stuff. She wants to walk in, make an impression. I'm this person that's going to be very, you know, basically wearing a negligee. If that's what she wants to do, that's fine. I love you. Every time I say negligee, I get a yes from Sarah. Then fine. That's her decision. But it is, it seems to me, a decision. It's like, I'm going to the Washington, this is, you know, the White House. Uh, she's made a decision that she's going to make it her own with this level of what I would, wouldn't even call it casual. I would call it sort of provocative. Well, mm -hmm. definitely provocative and maybe in somebody else's eyes, inappropriate. Uh, but you know what? She was invited. She gets to wear what she wants and it will, you know, who nobody decides anything. It's it's done. Um, well, <clears throat> she's she's lucky that the Reverend Al Sharpton didn't wear that. Yeah, she yeah, I think we're all lucky. He was there and it would have been really embarrassing if Sharpton had shown up and they'd been like, oh, my God, I can't believe you wear that, too. Or it could have been like we called each other beforehand. We I, both were the same thing. I mean, I, I don't know. Uh, you know, I feel almost like a prude if I would say I thought it was a little inappropriate. I thought it was a, a little bit inappropriate. 
But again, it's it's fashion. People want to do what they want. It's, you know, it's not up to me. And maybe we put them, you know, this is how things change. You've said to me, and I've quoted you several times, you know, I said, well, you know, this is how journalism should be. And you said, no, Nancy, journalism is what you make it. So fashion at the White House Correspondents' Dinner is what you make it. And if this is what people want and are people going to do, that's what we're going to get. So we'll see. I I like negligees. That's what I'm gonna say. I, People I, don't wear them anymore. Oh, hello. <clears throat> except to um, Washington correspondence dinners, <laughs> but like nobody wears. Like I I always loved that look from like the old movies of this gauzy robe and then a tiny little like teddy bear satin thing and then heels with the fur things on it. I've almost bought those fur heels at like 10 different boutiques over the years. And every time I'm like, what the fuck are you going to do in these? Well, You're not going to wear them out. Well, why don't you buy them and find out? Maybe I will. I wear nightgowns, Emilio Pucci nightgowns. My mother's beautiful, 1970s Pucci. I, I love nightgowns. I, I wear Oh, I, I only wear nightgowns. I, I have old vintage slips that I wear. I'm not going to talk about this. This is, okay, this is we're too private. We're going to talk, um, talk about some journalism. We had a, I, I sent you something this morning because we were talking last week. And I was like, you know, Vice is kaput. And you're like, Nancy, don't be hasty. It's, you know, Vice News. Did I news. say that? I think so. You were like, it's not, it's not everything, you know, it's vice news. Parts of it are shutting down, but they are, I think they're declaring bankruptcy. They're, they're not, it's not good. Not good. Vice is, vice is toast. Vice is, I was going to say vice is rice and that makes no sense. No, it doesn't. Mm. Well, okay. uh, well, yeah, I mean, so you, you, so we, last week, uh, fifth column guys had in the studio here, they had Ben Smith who has a new book out called, what is it called, Sarah? Traffic. Traffic. Ben was here. It was great. I got to feed him some cake. It was super fun. And um, I re- I did read the piece that you, you linked today on Twitter about uh, the sale. Like they were almost going to be um, selling uh, BuzzFeed to Disney and how that all imploded. I thought that was a really really, really interesting piece. One of these pieces where, you know, it's it's an excerpt from his book and he was in the room there as one of like three guys or four guys coming in from, from BuzzFeed and meeting with the Disney people who were, who realized they needed to like inject some life into ABC News, which they owned because, you know, it, what, what year was this? 2000 and... Like 12. 10, 12. You know, obviously, you know, the internet was eating people's lunch. That's what was going on for newspapers and television stuff. So, you know, you want to get some of this stuff. You want to inject some of the new kid on the block into your old kind of model. So they were going to they were gonna buy BuzzFeed. And then someone within BuzzFeed was just like, no, no. One of the guys that showed up, it was so tense. This article made me so tense. But what was the twist was, you know, these were the young scamps. They were going to rule the world and they were ruling the world. It was Gawker. It was BuzzFeed. It was Vice. It was Vox. They were the guys. And now Disney's still around. And three of those four really are not. Well, BuzzFeed News is gone. The rest of BuzzFeed isn't. I think that was actually what I corrected you on. It wasn't Vice. I I didn't actually have an opinion about whether or not Vice would go away because it's been such a strange brand from the beginning. Um, you know, BuzzFeed has been a fascinating story because it did begin as this sort of, um, I don't know, like almost like trying to reverse engineer viral events on social media. You know, it was like, 
oh, people, do people like cat videos? Do people like lists? Okay, let's do those. And then it, it grew into a formidable news outlet, and that was under Ben Smith. So right. Ben Smith is uh, a journalist. He's probably in his late 30s. Um, he's, I, I interviewed for a job at BuzzFeed once. Can I tell you that Ben Smith could not have been less interested in me? Like, like he could not have been more like checking his watch and like looking around him. And I told somebody later and they were like, that's kind of him. And I was like, okay, fine. But like, it was definitely this thing where you could just feel that you were not getting the job. Like the second you sat down. Yeah. 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 And he was basically logging. Like it was like an internet date where you were like, how many minutes do I have to spend before this looks bad? Um, so anyway, that was my one interaction with Ben Smith, but I quite, admire his reporting, which I didn't really know until he left BuzzFeed in 2019 or so, 2020, and he became the New York Times media critic. His first piece was an amazing story about Ronan Farrow that I thought articulated so well these these problems that I'd had with Ronan Farrow that I hadn't really been able to figure out. I couldn't put my finger on it. And over the year or two that he stayed on, I thought he was pretty good. I, I didn't always agree with him. And that's usually how I describe people that I find interesting. Um, he was on the fifth column. I listened to that episode the other day. I thought it was fantastic. One of the things that's super cool about that episode, um, and I'm sure this is like reflective of the book, Traffic, um, is that he leapfrogs over the last 10 to 20 years of media, and particularly online media. And of course, I was in that world very much. You know, I worked at Salon. I lived in New York. And at Salon, which was a brand that was very early in this race and was already kind of falling behind by the time I slipped into the editor's chair in 2007. I'm sure like I probably say, like hiring Sarah Heppel sort of marks the downfall of Salon. Like when the historians chart it, they're like, oh, there she is. She, she came in. She slipped in the door. That's when it started going bad. But um it did start losing its mojo to places like Huffington Post and, of course, Gawker and Jezebel, which had become major forces at the time. And I've spent so many years thinking about what it was that those places did, what, you know, what was going on at the time. Um, and and Ben and then, of course, Matt Welch and Michael Moynihan, who are talking to him as well, they're so brilliant about that era of news as well. It's It's just, it's a if you're a media junkie or interested in that phase of journalism, uh, it's a really great listen. Really, really great. It was connecting dots that I hadn't connected for myself um, about what Gawker was doing, about like it, it, you also get a little potted history of sort of the origin stories of each of these places, the personalities behind them. I didn't realize Matt Welch had been friends with Nick Denton. I know you've oh, yeah. mentioned Nick Denton we, over the we years. I had lunch with Nick a couple of years ago here talking about Paloma, building Paloma. Yeah. He, he yeah. And Nick is the personality behind the Gawker empire that, yeah. that began to crumble a few years ago with the Hulk Hogan, Peter yeah. Thiel lawsuit. Um, and, you know, it's it's really an interesting listen. So I, I've just been overburdened with stuff I need to do and deadlines. And so I was like, I, I need to not buy that book because I'm buying. I've been lately I've been buying a lot of books and not reading them. 
You know, they just sit on my shelf and it makes me crazy. So I was like, don't buy that book. But then uh, Ben is running a newsletter called Semaphore. Now, S-E-M-A-F-O-R. It's, it, Semaphore is really good. It's been going on now. I think it's about six months old now. It's Semaphore is very good. Um, I check it with some frequency. It's one of the places I go. They also have, so they took, uh, they took uh, Max Tanny from the Daily Beast. Uh, I had a lot of problems with some of the stuff that Tanny did over the Daily Beast, especially about the Donald McNeil stuff. I, I was pretty openly critical. Um, but I actually wound up going to Ben Smith's book party the other day down here, uh, right a few blocks from my house at uh, Umberto's Clambaugh. So I grabbed a free oh, book and, I, and Max Tanny was there. And I didn't get to talk to him because he was talking to a bunch of people. But I want to say, not that he's going to be listening to this, Max Tanny jumping over to Semaphore, Max Tanny's doing some really excellent work. And so it kind of makes you think like, is it the journalist or was it the publication or what they were going sure. to Right. So I'm going to say in this case, it was the Daily Beast demanding they needed they needed their meat, you know, cut in a certain way. And Semaphore cuts it in a way that I prefer. Um, and Semaphore is doing some 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 pretty great work over there. It's one of the, the new sites that you should that you, you might check in and, and get some stuff from. It's interesting. Yeah, I really like it. And so I I saw this morning when I so I woke up at one fifteen which means that by like 6 a.m. I had tapped out. You know, I was just like, well, that's my that's my work day. Um, and I was like, I'm going to curl up and read for a little bit. And so I saw that there was an excerpt from his book, Traffic, that had been uh, published in Vanity Fair. And I thought, oh, I want to read that. I just kind of like to get a feel for this book and whether I like the writing or not. And wow, I, I liked the writing quite a bit. I, I think... There is something that certain journalists do that they make you feel like you're in all places at once. Mm. Um, it's a sort of immersive experience. So like if if you're at a conference, it's like, you know, this person at this table said this and this person on stage is saying that and this is what the room was like. You know, one of the things that struck me about Ben's writing is that it's very fast moving, but it gives you just enough detail as you're going along to kind of paint the picture so it becomes very visual. And of course, he's so knowledgeable about journalism and specifically online media during these years, that you get all sorts of really interesting tidbits along the way. So this tells the story of Jonah Peretti, the founder of BuzzFeed, uh, making the decision to sell to Disney in around 2012 when BuzzFeed had really hit its stride. As you said before, the people that were running BuzzFeed, including Ben Smith and a guy that ran their video department named Z Frank, they sort of felt like the Young Turks. They were going to be inheriting the mantle of media empires. They mentioned at one point that Mark Zuckerberg had turned down a $1 billion uh, offer from Yahoo, which I didn't even know. And that, of course, turned out to be really good for Mark Zuckerberg because Yahoo was a was a declining brand and you didn't want to be yoked to that brand. Well, you know, there was some wisdom in maybe not selling out to Disney. The deal was something like $450 million. The whole thing felt very succession, by the way. Well, the whole, I mean, you've got Iger, Robert Iger. It's very, I mean, when they're saying like, he has a line in there saying, you know, the the meeting had that sort of false casualness of all business meetings. Like everyone's like, oh, hey, yeah, nice to see you. Yeah, yeah. just went from DC. Doesn't mention he was just meeting with Obama. It's like this, it's so fraught. Like you're trying to be super casual, but you're talking about $450 million and you're talking about the thing that you birthed and you created. And that was 
Peretti, I think I'm getting that name right. That was his problem with it. He was like, I don't know. Like if I, if I give this thing that we created to this person, to Disney, what happens to it? Like, I'm not feeling confident that it's going to be a thing that I, you know, continue to feel proud of and to love and want to run. So yeah, Jonah Peretti is a bit of a mystery in this story. I mean, he's there, but he's sort of, you're not quite sure what he's thinking. I found myself quite sympathetic with him though, because he's clearly a very smart person. He's asking questions. He's, he's sort of Socratically trying to pull out from different people that have different opinions. Like, well, what would this mean? What would it, you know, what do you want to be building? And, you know, and he, he mentions at some point, you know, uh, that he doesn't really like Disney. He's not a fan of the theme parks. He's kind of like, ah, eh, they're kind of shitty. And I was like, yeah, I don't really like Disney World either. Like, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know if I would want to sell my baby, no, exactly. to uh, the people that made Mickey Mouse. I mean, it's not Walt Disney anymore. It's it's a whole other empire. People that have a whole other agenda going on, and and so he doesn't make you know, he decides not to do it. And uh, at the time, it seems like such a smart decision because BuzzFeed is really on the ascent. They're hiring away really interesting reporters. One of my dearest friends who worked at the New York Times went over to to be one of the main editors at BuzzFeed News for many years during this, this time. So I had a, a peek into what that world was like. It was... Um, Oh, by the way, I watched this show, Single Drunk Female. Have you heard of that show? No. Yeah, I think it's on Hulu. And um, I was interviewed about it for Jezebel, which was hilarious because I was like, well, I haven't watched it. But um, it, it was it was a it was a story about a young woman that works at a BuzzFeed like publication. And she gets really like, in, I'm not spoiling anything. This is like the first 10 minutes of the show. She gets super drunk at work and ends up in a fight with her boss. But the offices look like BuzzFeed and it's obvious like that's what she's doing. And um, when I went to BuzzFeed for that job interview, <clears throat> I'm pretty sure they had a kegerator in the kitchen. Because uh, well, yeah, why wouldn't they? I mean, right. Because why wouldn't they? Because it was the it was the fusion of the Silicon Valley tech world and media. And it was and 2010 so, or 2012 and people are young and maybe on Fridays they want a beer. I mean, it's like not. Maybe beer. on Tuesdays they want a beer, Nancy. Maybe on Tuesday at four they want a beer. Like it's it's not, you know, this is, we're starting to see the party culture bleed into the work culture uh, in a really interesting way because the old lines of five o'clock don't really apply anymore because just hit your marks, right? Just right. get 10 posts a day. Um, and so that's why I thought it was interesting that single drunk female was set in that environment. I've been told they do, they no longer have the kegerator. Um, they have cold brew coffee or something like that. Yeah. Fair enough. Anyway, um, I, I f just loved this piece and I loved, I don't think I knew that I wanted to take a nostalgic trip through the last 10 years of media until I started reading it. And I was like, oh, it was really cool because so much of this was happening around me because of like when I was at Salon, you're watching these things rise up. You know, you're going like, oh, okay, everybody's likes Huffington Post. So let's chase Huffington Post. And then suddenly it's like, no, let's chase Gawker. No, let's chase BuzzFeed. And, you know, it, it's this herky jerky roller coaster ride where you're changing directions every 
year or two and the, you know you've got different editors above you and you've got different board members saying different things and it's just all kind of coming down from on high and and you're trying to make sense of it inside that um you know the time that I was I was at salon for like 7 years and in those 7 years the philosophy of the place changed so dramatically and even the way we wrote headlines changed so dramatically the way that that you know you had to have seo stuff in the in the headline and we would get reports on what words were trending on seo and seo is search engine optimization and you know your goal was to put the most the most terms in the headline i mean everything was so crazy well here's what was going on i mean this was this was like building flying the plane as you're learning to build it right that's right all new. So, and of course, like you can always do things better in journalism or like what worked in 1952 in Ohio is not going to work in 1990 New York or, you know, 2012 in LA. So you're, you're learning to fly the plane as you build it. But there was also, this was also the era starting around the turn of the century of stupid money, of so much money floating around people leaving. I made such scads of money for a couple of years there because people are just like, wait, oh my God, you could write me online columns. Here's money, here's money. It's like Matt Welch can tell you the same stories. I mean, it was just stupid money because people believed. They believed. They're dogfood.com or, you know, whatever it is. Dogfood.com? Whatever. There was, a, there was a petfood.com thing. It's like, it's going to blow. Everything's changing. We're going to change the way we live and I'm going to have my money in there to invest and do it. Well, some of these things worked. Most of them didn't. I remember getting an apologetic phone call from a woman who had been giving me such stupid money to write like silly little columns. Like I I made $25,000 in six months from her, which for a freelancer is, is stupid money. And she's like, I just, I'm so sorry. We're just like running out of money. I can't pay you anymore. I'm like, lady, it's been a really oh nice ride. God. Don't worry about it. But so it went from like that sort of little stuff to then like, well, we'll build the empires and people were still believing. And they, and you know, in, in many ways they were right to believe because we have moved news online. But, you know. It was so, it, it's so interesting because actually two things were going on at the same time. I, I need to, I need to put a finer point on the point that you just made. Yes, a lot of money was floating around, especially amongst established brands, you know, there was a, I remember you reminding me that one of my first jobs when I moved to New York in 2006, I got a job writing video blurbs for MTV, which had just started a video game, what was called then Vertical. I didn't play video games, but I, my job was to basically take press releases and write interesting sentences about them. And for this, I got like $400 a week, which was what I lived on. And it was amazing. But at the same time, the blogger culture was rising up, which was a very different ethos. You no longer were getting salaries. Like when I when I went to Austin Chronicle, I got, what, $24,000 a year plus bonuses. It was the 90s. It was super great. I had benefits. It was a great, great starting job. Well, we'd gone to the gig economy where people were like, here, write 10 blog posts a day and you'll get a bonus if it goes viral. But, um, you know, 10 blog posts a day is like, is like a lot. It's a lot. And, it's a lot. And you get 10, and I, where I was writing, it was $10 a blog post, which was, um, which was um, uh, an amount they had, they basically, they basically poached Gawker. 
Meanwhile, Huffington Post wasn't paying anything. No, they weren't. And I remember I was in LA at the time when Huffington Post came out and like everyone's like, oh, I have a piece in Huffington Post. It's like, yeah, you and 12,000 other people, which is fine. Right. I mean, you want to get, and it, for some people to get a byline, that was fine. But there was literally zero money. I have a cute little side story about that. So Tava went to grade school with a lot of, there were a lot of famous kids in her class when she went to seventh and eighth grade. And one was Gene Simmons, you know, in Kiss. And Gene Simmons has a ton of money because he's done a lot of different kind of investing in projects and everything. I happen to be at like a, like a small party at someone's house. It was a kid's birthday party. I don't know. He and I are in the kitchen. We're just yakking. And he's like, you know what? I'm going to start a magazine. I'm going to start a magazine. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm, I'm like, I'm a journalist. What do you, you know, I write for the time and all this stuff. And he's like, oh, great. Yeah, yeah, you should write for me. I've got this great business model of how it's going to work and everything. I'm like, great. What is it? He goes, well, I'm not going to pay the writers. I'm like, oh, right. great. Thank you. <laughs> so, okay, see you but, later. But, but, but actually at that time, and obviously still now, I'm sure, you know, they, they weren't, they weren't paying. Um, well, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a halfway point between, between, social media where you basically realize that people will write content for free that will capture everyone's imagination. Like basically it's, you know, and this is where you get the rise of union organizing uh, because there were no, there were no safety nets for journalists suddenly. And, and we were hiring, I know at Salon, we were hiring people for just dirt amounts of money coming straight out of grad school and then that, you know, they couldn't afford their rent, but it was kind of like, well, what other job is going to pay you a salary? You know, $40,000 $40, is better than nothing in New York. It's better than whatever, you know, Vogue or whatever will pay you because those women's magazines jobs have always been notoriously underpaid. But anyway, I'm sorry. <clears throat> My mom has told me she has a tea that I can drink. It's milk thistle tea. Yep, and it's going to help with this this ridiculous frog that I've got in my throat. But um, she sound- hasn't given it to me yet. So, uh, But one thing about, you know, when you're saying if you have to write 10 blog posts today, I'm sorry, uh, three of them are going to be garbage. Garbage. It, well, it's not even that they're going to be. The writing can be fine. I mean, if you're a good writer or you're a fast writer, nimble, you can do it. But it's like the content. Like, you know, you know what I found too, because I did this job for a little bit, is that the less time you spend on it, oftentimes the more it goes viral. And it'll be this really stupid thing that gets all the hits. And then you'll spend, you know, five hours reporting something and nobody reads it because it's too yeah. long. Yeah. So, um, so, so it was just, it was a really good piece. I was really glad to read it. I'm very curious to, to wa- uh, to read the book. You know, he brought up in that interview in the fifth column, he brought up a, a period of time that I had forgotten about, which was that turn of the century Perez Hilton <clears throat> pre-Jezebel, like when Perez Hilton, he was this gay guy that would take pictures of celebrities and draw semen on it. And, and he was saying, you know, do you not remember this? I do remember Perez Hilton, but I didn't remember the semen. I, I maybe I blocked it out, Sarah. You probably did because it was a lot of them, especially Paris Hilton, because you know this was the age of the Paris Hilton sex tape. He had named himself Perez Hilton in sort of homage to her, but in typical sorry, sorry, but like queenie gay way, he just tore her down all the time, um, and. 
it was a weird moment. And Ben Smith on the fifth column was saying like, hey, guys, what was going on? Why why were people doing that? And of course, Matt and Moynihan are like, I don't know. We weren't reading Perez Hilton. We don't have any idea. But it got my brain going because I was like, oh, that was... It was in many ways a response to a huge tabloid culture that had taken over in the late 90s and early aughts, Us Weekly, Star, um, people to a lesser extent. But I just remember all my friends were reading Us Weekly. And, you know, it was so glossy. And, you know, and so Perez Hilton was this kind of punk version of that where you were going to take the paparazzi photos and make them ridiculous. And he would like circle cellulite and things like that. He would do all this sort of ridiculous stuff because it was also a fairly vapid time in pop culture. This was the rise of the celebrity sex tape. Paris Hilton was one of the biggest stars. I think Paris Hilton has actually turned into a really interesting person. She looked so incredibly beautiful. And she's beautiful. I mean, she was, she was just arrestingly beautiful. I was like, wow, okay. But when she rose up in the culture, it was this Kim Kardashian on steroids where, you know, she seemed very vapid. She didn't do anything. She came from a lot of money. Um, You know, she had this, <clears throat> remember her catchphrase? That's hot. That's hot. And she was always saying that. And, you know, and, and a lot of celebrity commentary was was sort of designed around making fun of this um i used to watch a show called best week ever on vh1 and it had like john mulaney and michael ian black and they were all sort of talking about the week in culture in trash reality shows and what paris hilton had done and it was all these smart funny stand-up comedians who were getting paid probably like i don't know probably throw like 300 bones to make funnies about Paris Hilton and Lindsay Lohan and Britney Spears, who were the triumvirate of tabloid sweethearts at the time and sort of always getting into this bad behavior. They were drinking too much. They were dating the wrong men. This all culminates in Britney Spears' epic meltdown where she shaves her head and and um, swings something at a swings a, an umbrella at a paparazzi's window. I mean, I just and it that just felt like the 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 safety tip that burst the balloon. It was just like, okay, this is not funny anymore. Like these are real people, and and we need to cut this out. But but he was explaining that Jezebel, which launches in like two thousand six two thousand seven, was in response to that culture. It was such a smart savvy, knowing, fun way to talk about pop culture without being shitty and denigrating. And one of their first mandates was this no body shaming rule. And that it was run by this woman, Anna Holmes, who had come from the women's magazines. And the women's magazines were just such silliness. I mean, I didn't even know the women's magazines because I didn't read them. I wrote for Marie Claire for uh, a about a year, it was that again. Talk about stupid money. I mean, it was. I did cover stories for them. I would like talk to a movie star, and I would, you know, get something. I did get the scoop. I will say on um, Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise's divorce. I, I was knew that was you. I knew I recognized you from well, somewhere. Let me just tell the story very quickly. I was supposed to meet with Nicole Kidman to do the little cover story, and her her manager Pat. 
oh, huge name. I'm forgetting her last name, Kingman, Klingman, something. Uh, I got a call saying, well, she's got to put it off. And I tried to get a call and I finally called. I didn't realize, I, I, I didn't really write about movie stars. So I called this woman's office, kind of just like, listen, I need to get this. I've got a deadline. Like, you got to make this happen for me. <laughs> if I'd known how incredibly powerful she was, I probably would have been a little less strident. But anyway, they're like, okay, go and meet her at X. And I go to West LA and it's, I'm actually, the, she meets me out in my car. She sits in my car and she's kind of upset. Mm. And she's like, oh, let's go upstairs. And we go up to her friend's apartment. It's like a little apartment in West Los Angeles, like a nothing little apartment. It belongs yeah. to a friend, some guy. And she said, I'm, I'm, Tom and I are, I don't know if she said separating or divorcing. Now, this was not what the story I was supposed to be. I was supposed to probably be writing about her hair or something, right? And I was like, okay. And um, I got in touch with my editor immediately afterwards and said it, and they ran it as, it ran as an item the next day, like everywhere. But that wasn't the story. I mean, I included it in the story. But women's magazines are a weird place, man. They Did I ever are- tell you my Marie Claire story? No, you're about to. No, you have not. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. I've never told this story. I've never told this story in public. And I just want to say that if you work for Marie Claire now, I don't hold this against you. Uh, I will do work for you. Um, But 10 or 12 years ago, I was a freelancer and I was newly sober. So it would have been about 10 years ago. And they asked me to write a story for them. And I, you know, you, you pitch a couple stories. And I had had a bunch of conversations with female friends around that time who had told me they really weren't into oral sex, meaning they didn't like getting it. Hello, Smoker and Gotham listeners. If you are hearing this, that means you have just listened to the free portion of our, oh, I don't know, biweekly episodes with Sarah Hepla. Sarah Hepla, who's just so busy right now. She could not record this little uh, interim moment for you. Um, We're happy to have you here as a free subscriber. If you'd like the entire episodes, please go over to smokeempodcast.substack.com and sign up and subscribe. Then you will get the full episodes every week, plus some special things we drop for you on the weekends and our monthly, our first Sunday Zooms. Again, to get the full fig, that is smokeempodcast.substack.com. Thanks.